you have uh, God's Word with you, would you please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, and 6 in particular for our Christmas passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we'll be reading to verse 7. And may God plant his eternal word, the incarnate word, into our hearts. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our holy and loving Father, we thank you for your word. The word which was from the beginning. The word which was always been with you. The word which was God. We thank you for your word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold your glory in your word. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word who is Jesus Christ. So that this day we may receive grace upon grace. In the name of Christ, the incarnate word, we pray. Amen. Well, this is the season of the year when whether we wish it or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Jesus Christ. Said Charles Spurgeon at the start of his sermon on the 23rd of December in 1855. And after dispelling any notion of religious necessity of celebrating Christmas, he went on, however, I wish there were 10 or a dozen Christmas days in the year as an opportunity to preach on the incarnation of Jesus. I feel much the same way in my own heart because there is no greater delight than to ponder upon the birth of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christmas is the coming of Christ into the world. It's about the Son of God who existed eternally with the Father as the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, taking on human nature and becoming a man. Christmas is about how God became poor and low and lowly out of love for mankind so that we would be rich and lifted high unto him. It's about the great love of God to send his only son into the world so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And yet so completely are we carried away by the excitement of this overly commercialized midwinter festival that its true meaning eludes our grasp. The true meaning of Christmas too easily gets lost under the unwrapping of presents, the endless white elephant exchanges, secret Santas, and yet apart from its theological meaning, it really has none at all. Now, a half dozen doctrinally sound carols, it serves to keep alive the wonderful truth of Christmas. But aside from these popular Christmas music played over again in the radios and in the malls, it's really void of any lasting truth. 
Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, not going to sing that song. Frosty the Snowman, Jingle Bells, Winter Wonderland have pretty much taken over in Christmas poetry and song. These, along with merry old St. Nicholas and Santa's Little Helpers, have stripped Christmas of its real meaning. Now, if you were to go out to Union Square, let's say, in San Francisco, and ask a number of people, what does Christmas mean to you? You are sure to get a variety of and very predictable answers. It's about family. It's, a, it's time for the children. It's about gifts. It's about quality time with those whom you love. Others may say it's about traditions, decorating the Christmas tree and seeing Christmas lights and making gingerbread cookies. And if we as Christians are not careful, we can impress upon our children that these romantic appeals of Christmas festivities are what Christmas is all about. The Apostle Paul was right when predicting the future times to Timothy. He says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside into myths. But dearly beloved, we must not forget that the church is the custodian of the truth. We are to guard the truth which has been entrusted to us. And in a time when pagan ideologies and are substituting the real message of Christmas, we must make its true meaning known and treasured. And friends and family members, if you've been dragged here or invited here, if you've ever wondered why it is that Christians celebrate Christmas and focus so much on the person named Jesus, well, you've come to the right place today because the Bible tells us of its true meaning. And to understand the true meaning of Christmas, we come to a verse that has been plastered over so many Christmas cards, a verse so familiar Yet its familiarity numbs our understanding of this verse. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And this child the prophet Isaiah speaks about establishes five truths of Christmas. First, Christmas means Rejoicing in Emmanuel, God with us. Now, one of the most recognizable names we hear during the Christmas season is Emmanuel. We first hear of this name in Isaiah 7, 14. Would you turn there in your Bibles? And as you're turning there, there is a connection between our passage in Isaiah 9, 6 of the child who will be born to us because in Isaiah 7, 14, it speaks of a child and not simply an ordinary child. Listen to this verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, since the Lord spoke this prophecy through Isaiah to King Ahaz, many Jewish commentators say that this prophecy of Emmanuel merely is a sign given to the King Ahaz in a time of monarchy in the Old Testament and has only to do with the immediate events that would transpire in that land. It's not a prophecy of a virgin, they say, of bearing a child, they say, of especially the Virgin Mary. But it was fulfilled by a young woman of that time, perhaps the prophet's wife. But that completely ignores the name of this child. Emmanuel, for this child, is called El, a word that Isaiah uses to signify deity. And Iman, meaning with us. Isaiah, therefore, is not announcing some contemporary birth. 
neither that of Hezekiah nor of himself or any obscure child, rather in a very dim and, and strange vision. Isaiah looks forward to the birth of one whose very presence brings God to his people. And when a child will have been born, then God will have come to his own. Now you have to understand that to an Old Testament saint, no greater blessing can ever be conceived than for God to dwell with his people. From the Garden of Eden, when God walked amongst Adam and Eve, to his promise that he gave to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, that God would be with them, to the presence in the tabernacle in the days of Moses, to King David, the days of monarchy, the presence of God is at the heart of Old Testament experience. I want you to think of the comfort that David speaks of, recalling his days as a shepherd, and perhaps what is the most famous words in the Old Testament. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Oh, the presence of God to an Old Testament saint meant protection, comfort, sustenance. Well, when he's not with us, that's spelled disaster. In fact, one of the most surprising and frightening verses in all of the Bible, which describes hell, the place of eternal destruction is found in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 1-9 in a phrase like this, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so to be away from the presence of the Lord is what the apostle Paul thought of as hell. But if God is with us, then life cannot only be endured, it may be triumphed over. I will be with you, God promised to his people. But the remarkable part of Isaiah's prophecy is that he will come to his own, not by might and not by power, but by the birth of a little child. All the beauty and the mystery and majesty of Christmas gathers around that name, Emmanuel, God with us. But we ask, who was this child, Emmanuel, to be? Of course, we know the answer. It's Jesus. But if you were Isaiah, you must have wondered. You must have wondered who this child is. And how was he able to fulfill bearing the name Emmanuel? Well, later on in chapter 9, God gives more clues to Isaiah to understand who this child would be. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now before we dissect these four names given to this child, we must first notice that this verse begins with four. Four gives the reason why this child is born to us. Four is the grounds why a son will be given to us in the first place. Four gives the basic reason for the marvelous blessings that this child is born to us. And here we come to the second truth of Christmas. Christmas means that man is lost, but not abandoned. To understand Emmanuel, we must, we must see the coming of this child against a very dark background. Now, we often take Isaiah 9-6 in isolation and we forget the context in which this verse was written. And what we see is the reality that all mankind is lost, but not abandoned. Turn to the last verse of chapter 8 in Isaiah. It speaks of the lostness of mankind in the most dreadful terms. 
Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Isaiah speaks of how mankind will look upward and there is no help. Nor is there help if one looks to the earth. No matter where the wicked looks, he finds no hope. What he sees is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. There is a distress of every person's soul and distress of physical circumstances and distress speaks out in the darkness. You know, that about sums up life here on this earth. Despite all the small joys and victories that we do have on this earth, life is filled with distress with hurt, with sufferings, and with oppression. All is summed up in these words, the gloom of anguish. Isaiah is presenting for us a view of life if God is left out of life's equations. If the creator God of the Bible is rejected, then we must resort to other means in order to feel as if we are in control over our lives. You know, there is a deep need in all of our every human to feel that we have some knowledge and control over our lives. And if God is left out of one's understanding of life, then we will have to consult to other means. In Isaiah's day, it is to the dead, the mediums and the spiritists they consult. Or in our day, we consult the religion of science, human resources. But the result is distress and darkness. What can creation tell creatures about the meaning and the destiny of life? Only as one philosopher said that life is short and brutish. That's all creation can tell us. When you trust everything else but God, the darkness only gets worse. Friends, we must see that the gloom of anguish, the frustrations of this life, the reason why life doesn't add up and brings about pain is sin. In the Bible, sin is described as darkness. And the end result of those who live in the dark is to be driven into deeper darkness. You know, sinners often think that they live in the light and they possess freedom and independence and an unprejudiced mind. But in actuality, they walk in darkness. They're slaves of gloom. They are in bondage to sin and their lust and their prejudice over in favor of evil. In every heart and at every end of life, there is the gloom of anguish. Things really are this dark. Man is really this lost, but not abandoned. For we see that chapter 9 begins with this all-important word, but, and transitions the gloom of anguish to triumph and deliverance. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the following verses, we see a number of blessed contrasts promised by God. You see it in our text. God promised that there will be no more gloom in the earlier times. But later on, we see he shall make it glorious. He points to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the two northern tribes of Israel, which was first devastated by being nearest to the foreign countries, most influenced by pagan influences. But later, he shall make these lands glorious. And the means in which All the nations are blessed in the world. And just for the sake of time, I'll point you to Matthew 4, 13 to 15 for you to look later to see how that was fulfilled. But then God promises that from darkness, as a result of sin and sorrow, verse 2, they will see a great light, the emblem of knowledge and 
purity and joy. The darkness was also a symbol of death. But only a great light, which was able to bring life, could dispel the deep darkness. The darkness of sin and death can only be removed by a great light, like the bright sun, which is the source of life. But there is more that God promises. Though man is lost and left to themselves, sorrowful, God shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And so we go from sorrow to joy. And their joy is not meager. Isaiah compares it with the joy of workers at the harvest, like a huge bonus on a payday. Who doesn't like that? And the gladness of soldiers dividing the spoil, like the locker room of the winning team that wins a Super Bowl. The triumph of God's grace over our depressing failures is joy unspeakable. But there is one more blessed contrast. From bondage to freedom. Verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. This is a great image of emancipation from bondage. The yoke of their burden and the rod of his oppressors recalls Egypt and the cruel taskmasters that oppressed him. But we know that Egypt and the taskmasters was only the outer shell of the bondage of the burden in sin. You see, sin, which we all have, is a burdensome yoke. It subjects man to slavery like the beast of oil. He is under the taskmaster that beats him. God promises to break this heavy yoke of sin as at the battle of Midian. Why as at the battle of Midian? Because so mighty is the victory that it is compared with the victory over Midian by the Lord through an unlikely hero named Gideon. You remember the story, right? God deliberately reduced the size of his army from 32,000 men to 300 so that these 300 would not be like Sparta and beat all these guys, but they would go around blowing trumpets and breaking jars and holding up torches in the night so that it would be unmistakable that the battle was the Lord's. Isaiah is looking ahead to a victory that is even greater than the battle of Midian. For this victory will not only defeat all the forces of evil, but it will put a final end to conflict itself. God promises his Old Testament people a triumphant brightness that they've never seen before. And so, yes, man is lost. And man is utterly in distress and in anguish, darkened by sin, burdened and in bondage of sin. But you see, the Christmas message is that God who is with us is God who wants to turn our gloom to glory, our darkness into light, our despair into joy, our conflict into peace and liberation. But how would God accomplish this? Deliverance from the guilt and power of sin requires that someone make atonement for it. Someone must pay for the sins. God cannot simply take his divine eraser and simply erase our sins. Who then is, that, is it that this will be? This answer is given in this wonderful verse. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God's answer to all of those blessed contrasts is in a child. 
Now, while the king, this ruler that Isaiah speaks about, is clearly of human origin, he is also assigned titles of divinity. Though this victorious liberator is human, he has names that are only exclusive to God. Here then is the third truth of Christmas. Christmas means that God became a child. Now in verse 6, the word child speaks of humanity. It occurs first in the Hebrew because all the weight and the emphasis falls upon it. And Isaiah has already pointed out that this child will be God with us. Here he says that this child will be for us. Then it says, upon this child's shoulder, the government with all of its responsibilities will rest. Think of it. Authority over the whole world is supposed to lie on the weak shoulders of a child? This child, Isaiah tells us, will come to carry the burdens of the world. But this authority consists in the fact that the bearer does not collapse under the burden, but carries it all the way to the end. Upon the shoulders of this child, the whole burden of people and their guilt lies. He must carry the lowly, the humble, the bruised, and the broken upon this shoulders. Who is this child, Isaiah must have thought? And how can someone as weak as this child bury the burdens of the world? Well, Isaiah tells us that this is not any ordinary child. He is God himself. That is the outstanding and the wondrous claim of Christmas, that God became a child. Now, the names ascribed to this child are only fit for God. Wonderful counselor tells us something about this child. Notice first the adjective describing this counselor. He is wonderful. Now, while we may define in our language wonderful as some, something simply good, like when you hear the famous jingle, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? To describe marshmallows for toasting, parties for hosting, and much mistletoe. The writers of the Old Testament, they use the word for acts of God which man cannot understand. And of particular interest to us is the passage that is found in Judges 13, 18, where the angel of the Lord replies to Manoah, Samson's father, regarding his name. Just prior to this, Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? Here's what the angel of the Lord replied. Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. In other words, the angel of the Lord was incomprehensible to man. That's a clear indication that this wasn't an angel, but it was God himself. The name wonderful suggests one who in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. And to give this child the title wonderful is to mark him out as God. He is not simply wonderful, but wonderful counselor you know the term counselor has become very popular in our times whether in high schools or in college single and married if you're a veteran whatever stage in life there are counselors available for everyone but you see all the solutions of these counselors all the advice they give they fall short whether it is human advice or pharmaceutical antidotes because our fundamental problem you see as isaiah tells us is spiritual darkness we need counsel, not simply to get past our current circumstances in life. We need counsel that will point us to eternal life. 
Did anyone ever fulfill this more wonderfully in being a wonderful counselor than Jesus? In Jesus, we are told, all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Upon him, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 11, that the spirit of wisdom is to rest. And we know when Jesus promised to his disciples that when when he leaves them, he would send them the Holy Spirit, their helper, or better, counselor, to lead them to greater light. Then this child is named Mighty God. Now that unquestionably divine title can only describe God as the ancient creeds declare this child is very God of very God that can never be said of any other human being. Let that truth sink into our souls that it was God himself who came down from heaven. Mighty God is the name of this child. Mighty speaks of strength, valiant or a hero. So we may, we may say that this child is a heroic God, the ones who, who wins a battle for us. But how does he win the battle for us if he is but a helpless child? Diedrich Bonhoeffer asks the same question and he answers it like this. Where is the divinity? Where is the might of the child? In the divine love in which he became like us. His poverty in the manger is his, is his might. In the might of his love, he overcomes the chasm between God and humankind. He overcomes sin and death. He forgives sin and awakens from the dead. Kneel down before this miserable manger, before this child of poor people, and repeat in faith the stammering words of the prophet, mighty God, and he will be your God and your might. Friends, there is the power of God in those tiny little fists of this child. Then we have this name, Everlasting Father. How can this be the name of the child? You see, because only in this child, the fatherly love of God is revealed. And this child wants nothing other than to bring to the earth the love of God the Father. You see, we are not only in darkness, not only in bondage to sin, but we are spiritual orphans. And though we were created to belong to God's family, to enjoy the Father's love and care, we sinned against God, and as a consequence, we were banished from His family. Sin made us lost, homeless, and fatherless. But through Emmanuel, we can be adopted into the family of God. This child brings eternity with Him to this earth and brings to us all the love of the Father in heaven. You know, in John 1.18, we read, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. How marvelous is this verse. It tells us that the Son of God crossed the wide and mysterious gulf between God and not God, God and creature, and revealed the Father's love to us. I remember hearing about four or five sons who had been reared in a home, and the parents didn't say much. They didn't show much affection. Nobody did. Sounds like a typical Asian home. And the boys didn't. And they were babies. They stopped kissing their parents and stopped using words of affection. And eventually, these boys grew to be strong men. And they married, and they left home. They hardly came home or hardly even wrote to their parents. And when it was time for mom to pass, they sent for the boys. They said if they wanted to see her to come, they came, all of them big, 
mature fellows now, each with their own home and each with their own business and jobs. And as they stood around her bed, one of them said, Mother, we want you to know that what you've meant to us, boys, we haven't been unappreciative. We've loved you all these years, and we thank you. And then they separated. And when they had gone from her, the mother turned to the side of someone who was beside her side, and she said, oh, if they had only told me before. These years I've wondered if I meant anything to them. These years I thought I failed them. Now they tell me we're so thankful. If they had only told me earlier. You, you know, it's very possible to feel a lot and you never make it known. It's possible to love someone and never tell them. Oh, not so with our God. Because scriptures testified that nobody ever saw God but the only begotten Son. Jesus came to tell us of the Heavenly Father. He came to tell us of the Father's loving intention to save and to adopt and to love us forever and to His family. Lastly, this child is the Prince of Peace. Is there anything more wished upon or promised from world leaders than peace on earth? World peace seems to be the noble answer many give as, as aspirations of leaders of nations. But if these leaders and nations themselves will not have peace with God, then it is impossible to have peace amongst men. You see, the enmity that exists between God and man must be removed if there is to be true lasting peace. The Christmas message is that through Jesus Christ, true peace is offered. Peace I live, leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And best of all, this peace Isaiah speaks of, he says there will be no end to the increase of his peace when Christ the King reigns. The infinite barrier between us sinful creatures and God the Holy One is bridged because a child is born. That child and he alone is the Prince of Peace. Christmas is about a birth of a child and how this child shall bring about a great change and salvation and deliverance to mankind. And Isaiah is telling us the wonderful news that God became this child. Now, it is indeed an unfathomable mystery, for we know in the universe there are really only two things, God and not God. And all that is not God was made by God, and God was made by none. And so we have God and not God. But the wonder of all wonders is that in this unbridgeable, infinite gulf between God and not God, that God somehow managed to bridge that gulf by being born as a child, by joining himself to his creatures, or in the language we more popularly hear, that the transcendent becomes one of the created. The infinite becomes finite. The immortal experiences mortality. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, is the child born to us. Now the claim that Jesus is mighty God who has become a child, Isaiah telling us is the greatest possible hope for us in the world. Why would God come down and become a child? Because he knows we can never climb up to him. So he came down to us, you see. God had to come himself and do what we couldn't do. Now, though Isaiah does not tell us in this verse that this child would do what we couldn't do, namely to save ourselves, 
and he only gives us four divine titles, there is but one more title that he gives to this child. And for that, we turn to Isaiah 53, where this child is called my servant. Christmas means rejoicing in Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas also means that all mankind is lost but not abandoned. And in order to save mankind, we saw that Christmas means that God became a man. And fourthly, we see that Christmas means that God became a child to become the suffering servant so that God may always be with us. You see that God became a man was not an end in itself. The birth of Jesus is not the end in itself in Christmas. It was a means to an end. And the end was that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of men. But you know, our curious minds do ask, could there not have been another way? Couldn't God have saved us another way? Why? Why did God have to become a man? Why was it necessary? Because this was the only way to remove the guilt of our sin and to deliver us from death to eternal life. You see, the grave is the single most inescapable reality of human experience. We will all one day die in this world. And after our death comes the judgment. Mankind sinned against the holy God. And a holy God cannot ignore sin. And a holy and just God must punish sin or else he wouldn't be holy and just. You know, you and I are deeply offended when a guilty criminal escapes punishment, when they break the law, and they suffer no consequence, right? Earlier in the year, many were enraged to hear of Jeffrey Epstein's suicide because now countless numbers of sex predators from this horrific crime network of sex trafficking will never face punishment in the justice system on this earth. Epstein's suicide meant his knowledge of the, this individual that is involved is now lost. And we're enraged at this. Imagine if it was your child who was the victim of a sex predator in this whole network of Epstein. And all these predators went free without paying for their punishment. But how much more would the holy God, the perfect judge, feel the offense of sin if it was ignored and unpunished? The holiness and justice of God required an infinite punishment because we sinned against an infinite God. No mere animal, no mere man could even pay for one sin. But you see, only God who became man, only a God-man could be a, die a death sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. So Isaiah says of this servant, surely our griefs he bore. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has called, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, it all makes sense to us now. When we read Matthew's gospel, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he quoted what was to be fulfilled in the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall be with a child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which translated means God with us. When Jesus was born, he did so in order to become the suffering servant who would bear the penalty of sin on the cross. And by Jesus taking to himself sin and oppression and the sorrow and the horror of this world, oh, he was able to give back righteousness and freedom, eternal life and everlasting peace. Jesus is indeed wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Christ Jesus, our Emmanuel, became a child to die on the cross and be raised on high so that you might live with God forever. That's the message of Christmas. So we sing that Christ was born that no man no more may die, born to raise the Son of Earth, born to give them second birth. Now, as great as everything we've said thus far about the meaning of Christmas, perhaps the most wonderful part of it is that the gift of Christ is a personal gift from God to us. This great salvation and all of its beauty and joy and eternal life comes to us as a gift. And so fifth and the final truth of Christmas is that Christmas means receiving Jesus as a gift of grace. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It begins this way. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. To us is the marvelous gift that is given. And in this you see lies the glory of Christmas. It is this that makes it a gospel, a good news. For the gift is not of works. God's gift of salvation does not depend whether you've been naughty or nice. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You know a gift requires a response? If I put a gift under a tree, you may acknowledge it. You may admire the nice shiny wrappings. And it isn't yours until you open it and receive it as your own. Kids know what to do with presents, don't they? But do you? This is what God is telling you through Isaiah, that God has a gift for you, not wrapped in fancy ribbons or decorated wrapping paper, but in wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It is the gift of his son, and essentially it's a gift of God himself. Above all gifts, God desires most to give himself to his people. There is no greater gift than that. Oh, my friends, have you received this gift today? This gift is still there offered to you. It is unto us that he came. It is unto us that he is born. Christ can be yours if you would receive him today. You can receive him by turning from your sins and believing and accepting and following Jesus and you will be with God. Or better, God will be with you forever this is the true message of christmas let's pray together wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace we thank you for the wonderful message of christmas that you are emmanuel god with us how you are very god of very god 
and you would come down below and take on humanity and unite the uncreated to the created is the mystery of all mysteries. It would take all of eternity to fully comprehend the condescension of it all. But our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, what you have made clear is that you have come down to us because of your infinite love for wretched sinners like us. You have come down because of your desire to be with us. And you not only were born like us, you came to die our death and to shed your blood on our behalf that we might become like you and be with you forever. Thank you for this most wonderful gift this world has ever known. And we pray, oh God, that not one soul would leave this room today without receiving the gift of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Help us to embrace Christ, our Emmanuel. In his most wonderful name we pray, amen.